Everyone, please uh, reach for a Bible as you sit down and uh, turn with me to page 995 in our Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 1. As John said, we're continuing our little series in 2 Timothy that will straddle Christmas. We'll get most of the way there before Christmas and then we'll pick it up again on the other side. But this morning, chapter 1 and verses 8 to 18, I'm going to pray as we turn to God's Word. Thank you, Father, for the glorious gospel of life that we've been thinking about all morning. We want to pray for the work of your Spirit among us now through your Word as it's read and taught. And we pray that you might help us to know more fully and to appreciate more deeply the wonder of the gospel and that you might equip us as individuals and as a a church to guard and spread that gospel in the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start reading then from verse 8 of uh, chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Paul says to his dear son uh, in the faith, Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Please keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline of the sermon on the back of the notice sheet as well. And we saw last week that the the story of the Ephesian church uh, was one of explosive growth on the one hand and then complete collapse on the other. For the sake of those who weren't here, let me recap by asking you, to imagine that you arrived in Glasgow, let's say, as one of the first and only Christians in that great city, and you started talking to people in the streets about Jesus. And uh, people started listening to what you were saying, crowds started turning up, your message goes a bit viral, to the extent that within two years, tens of thousands of people have now heard the message of Jesus from you. And so many turn away from their previous religions, and they start to follow Jesus, and crucially, they start to spend their money differently 
that the entire economy of the city is affected, prompting some people who have been making their money in slightly more dubious ways to start rioting in the streets even because their dodgy business has started collapsing. So first one little church is born and then another, then another, and God's kingdom grows and grows soon that people all over the, the known world are starting to hold up the work that God is doing in Glasgow as a picture of strength and hope. Here is a beacon of what God can and is still doing in the world. And things are okay for a while. Then in the space of just a couple of years, the whole church is falling apart at the seams. There's some persecution that starts hitting the church from the outside. There's some false teaching that starts growing up within. And it has such a dramatic effect on these little new churches that pretty much everyone that you'd thought of as a friend and a brother and a sister in Christ just a couple of years earlier has now turned away from the gospel and uh, the gospel that you preached. And they're distancing themselves from you as the gospel preacher. So when you turn up to church on a Sunday, there are still people there, but they're not willing to listen to anything that you're saying to them. And you pitch up at your favorite Christian conference that last year was such an encouragement, and you look at all the people who last year had been so great to you and encouraged you and spurred you on so much in your faith and in your service, and you realize that in just 12 months, all of them have now departed from the truth, and you stand in a minority of one. Does it sound incredible that things could yo-yo so dramatically in quite such a short space of time? That is exactly what had happened to the church in Ephesus. It had been planted by the Apostle Paul and was now being led by his son in the faith, his mate, Timothy. Add in that Timothy's mentor, Paul, was about to die. He's in prison for his preaching ministry. And you begin to feel the, the pressure that Timothy was under to start doing something different. Would, it, would his message revive in popularity again if he just tweaked it a little bit and started saying things that were maybe a little bit more palatable to modern ears? And as I said last week, Paul had one shot. He's facing up to his own death. He knows he needs to hand the baton on to Timothy. He's got just three pages, or at least that's all he took in our Bibles, to try and say something that might strengthen Timothy to continue in all he had been doing in the past and to finish the race that was in front of him. That is the letter of 2 Timothy. And this morning's little chunk is crucial. It, it contains both the main application of the whole letter and the central driving motivation that's meant to get Timothy there. So if we get this little bit clear in our heads, we'll be a long way to hearing God's voice truly through the whole of the letter. And I've Got on the sheet three points. There's a what, a why, and a how. Um, I had that even before our excellent notice uh, earlier, telling us how we should all do church notices. What, uh, what does God want Timothy and us to do? Why does God want us to do it, and how is it possible? We'll start with the what, the command. And the command is simple. Guard the gospel of our Lord without shame. I've summarized it as one command. Really, there are four as you glance down to the text with me. First in verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Instead, Timothy's second command, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. On to verse 13, for the third, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me 
in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then fourth, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Uh, Put the four together. The lesson for Timothy, through him for everyone else in the church at Ephesus, the lesson for us is that one of the first jobs that God entrusts to leaders, Christian leaders of any kind, ministers, elders, anyone, is to be a guardian, someone who defends or protects or preserves the message of Jesus. Uh, Occasionally in my job, I have the privilege of visiting churches that are in a vacancy and to try and talk through with them the process of finding a new minister. And I always ask them, have you kind of thought in your heads at all, what are the key qualities that you would be looking for in a new minister? And I've concluded that uh, we must be under-preaching letters like 2 Timothy in our churches because they tend to say stuff like, well, we want someone who's a really dynamic leader, fair enough. We want an organizer. We want someone who's great with young people. We want someone who's a really good change manager. Occasionally, they often actually, they say we want someone who's a good teacher of God's word. Literally, no one has ever said we want a a guardian, that that's kind of near the top of our list. I wonder, is that, you think, because we, we think we can take it for granted? that surely every minister will remain faithful to and guard the gospel. Surely no minister could ever be ashamed of the message of Jesus Christ. If that were the case, why? perhaps you can mull on this and let me know what you think. Why do you think Paul feels the need to remind one of the most talented and one of the best trained, and one of the most trustworthy ministers of his generation, that this is a top priority. You need to guard the gospel. I take it it's because it's really hard to do. I take it because it's costly. I take it because it's, it's very easy to be distracted from this priority and to be caught up in all manner of other affairs in the life of a church. And that every minister, no matter how able, no matter how well-trained, will be tempted in one way or another to be ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes in verse 8, the temptation will be to be ashamed of the message itself. You'll see that, be ashamed of the message. Sometimes folks will say, well, it's just too exclusive. Or there are bits of it that we don't like hearing too much. We don't want to know about judgment, and we don't want to hear about false teaching. We just want to hear about God's love. Could you just tell us about that every Sunday instead? And so the minister or the Christian will be tempted to, to tweak the proportions or to silence some parts of what God has said and just major on the bits that a particular generation, a particular group want to hear. Or in verse 8, the temptation can be to be ashamed of the gospel messenger and his weakness instead. Seems to be what was happening here. Paul's in prison. We don't really want anything to do with him now because we might be chucked in prison as well. So we'll just put some distance between us and him. And Paul says to Timothy, no, you're to be a guardian of the gospel message and you're to be unashamed to stand with faithful gospel messengers. And if you're in any kind of Christian leadership, which some of you are, that's your job. 
And if you're not, it's the kind of Christian ministry you want to make sure that you sit under. And it's the kind of Christian minister and elders that you want to encourage and pray that the leaders of your church and any other church you know would be. And in whatever sphere of Christian influence God has given you, that's the kind of ministry that you want to imitate as well. The expectation, though, is that it will be costly. As soon as he's saying this, Paul is saying, share in suffering for the gospel. It's going to hurt, but you need to do it. Join me, Paul's saying, in doing this. And then you, Timothy, and your fellow elders and the church, do it together and persevere in doing it together because it's a whole church ministry. So a friend says to you directly, are you actually saying that you think God will judge me eternally if I don't believe in Jesus? And there is a cost to being unashamed at that moment. Well, they say, well, you're a part of the free church. Do you mean the we freeze? Is that who you're talking about? And they say it like you've, they've just discovered that you set fire to bunny rabbits for a, for a laugh every Friday afternoon or something. And my, my answer used to be, well, yes, it is the we freeze. But everyone tells me we're the least free church, free church that there, that there is. And as I reflected on that, I thought, well, maybe... That's because I don't want people to get a wrong impression of us because they've just heard stuff in the media that isn't actually true to reality. <coughs> or is there a chance that I'm a, a, at least a bit ashamed of what faithful gospel churches who do things a bit differently to us stand for? There is a cost in being unashamed. Now, quite often in this letter, Paul follows a command with live examples of what he means. He does that here, negative and then positive. Uh, verse 15, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't know a lot about them. They seem to be two pretty well-known Christian leaders, though, who had previously worked with Paul, but had now deserted him when he was imprisoned. And obviously, he'd been greatly hurt by that. Positive example, by contrast, Onesiphorus in verse 16, this great guy, he often refreshed me, says Paul. He was not ashamed of my chains. As you read on, when he got to Rome, he searched hard to find Paul in prison to bring him food and water. He was unashamed to say, that guy is my brother, and we follow the same Lord, and we believe the same gospel. And so Paul says, may God show mercy to Onesiphorus and his family. And subtext, Timothy, may you follow his example. Don't be a Phygelus or Hermogenes, be an Onesiphorus. That then is the, the what, the Christian leader is a guardian. Uh, it's reflecting, that means we're not owners of the gospel as though it belongs to us and we can add or subtract to it as we see fit in any generation. Guardians entrusted with the gospel for safekeeping. And of course, it needs to be presented in a fresh way in every generation, but we are never at liberty to change the message itself. We pass on to the next generation exactly the same biblical truths that we ourselves received. So if I'm reflecting on this passage in my quiet time tomorrow, or if I were to be discussing it over lunch or over coffee with someone at the end, I'd be wanting to ask myself, I'd be wanting to ask my friend, what do you think are the pressure points for you and me at the moment? 
what are the ways in which you and I are attempted to be ashamed of some of what the Bible has to say? The message itself, or maybe of faithful messengers. It is often the exclusivity of the gospel. Sometimes in our generation, it's to do with the sexual ethics that are taught by Jesus in the Bible. But knock it around and, and do let me know, where does the, the rubber hit the road for you personally in being unashamed of the message? First point then, the command to guard the gospel. And if that's the command, then the motivation in our second point is found in the gospel itself. Guard the gospel because it saves and gives life. And I love um, how in, embedded within this list of commands is one of the most glorious statements of the gospel, actually, you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. Let me read it again from verse 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Two key words here are grace and life. And remember that Paul is wanting to strengthen Timothy in us, He's thinking we might be asking ourselves, why would I choose to suffer for a message about a carpenter? Maybe you're checking out Christian things and you've wondered, why are my Christian friends willing to put up with, with ridicule or being distanced socially for their faith? Why are they so committed to living for Jesus? Why do they want to order their lives around this guy who lived 2,000 years ago? You may have asked that at some point. And this is the answer. God's grace is his lavish favor and kindness and love poured out on people like us who deserve the opposite from him. There's a famous old preacher's illustration that makes the point. It's maybe a bit twee, uh, but bear with it. It's about a young son who walks out on his family. Uh, he wastes his money and his life living entirely for himself. One day in desperation, he comes to his senses and he decides to write a letter home to his parents. He says, dear mum and dad, I've treated you so badly that I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. You probably don't want to know me, but I've got nowhere else to turn, so I'm coming home. My train gets in next Friday at 3 p.m., but I, I need to be sure that you want me back. So here's what I'd like you to do. The train's gonna pass by our family farm before it reaches the station. If we're good, please hang a white tea towel on the washing line. And if it's there, I know that you'll want me, but if it's not, I'll understand, and I'll stay on the train. Friday came, the train drew near. The sun could hardly bear to look. Eventually, he, he peeks through his fingers and sees there on the washing line, not a tea towel, but a, an enormous white sheet, the biggest they could find. 
And as he looked around, he sees on every tree in the farm more and more white sheets everywhere. And he knows that despite everything, he is welcome. And all he needs to do is to get off the train and receive their love. There is not one of us who has enjoyed God and loved God and obeyed God and trusted God as we should. We've all put other things, other people at the very center of our life. We've loved them and lived for them and we've pushed away the God who gives us life and breath. We've all done it. That's what I mean when I say we don't deserve God's love. What I deserve is God's right displeasure against me, his anger even. And God knew that, but still says verse 9, he saved his people anyway, not because of our works, not because of the good stuff that we do, but because of his own purpose and grace, his free love. And so right at the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, he made the decision to set his love upon us. And then when he sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross in our place to pay, take the penalty for our sins, he was displaying that grace to the world. And all we have to do is receive it. I think it was C.H. Spurgeon who used to say a big difference between heaven and hell is that the floor of hell is paved with the word deserved. Whereas above the door of heaven, there is a sign that says free entry for anyone who will come. And God's grace is that amazing. The other big word here is life. Um, I was driving back from Glasgow once and I found myself listening um, to a radio play, uh, which I don't often do, but it had been adapted from a novel by a woman called Muriel Spark. It's a moral fable that they put on the radio sometimes. It was called Memento Mori in which one after another, all of the main characters receive an anonymous phone call from someone who just says, is that Godfrey? Remember, you must die. Is that Charmian, I think her name was? Remember, you must die. Is that Dame Letty? Remember, you must die. Slightly odd play, if I'm uh, entirely honest about it, but it made its point very powerfully. I hesitate to press it because I know that some of us have been bereaved recently and others are being forced to face up to our own mortality in a new way. But in a way, when death presses in on us in that way, it just reinforces and magnifies this point. If I were to say to you that Jesus is a great companion and friend, you might tell me you don't get lonely. If I were to tell you that he's a great physician, you might tell me you're not sick. But we will all die one day, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And some people joke about death, and others pontificate, and most of us strive to delay it but no one has been able to defeat it apart from Jesus. But verse 10 says, Christ Jesus has destroyed death. 
through his own death and resurrection and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Think of the way that a, a child destroys wrapping paper at birthday or Christmas time, or the way a naughty puppy might destroy a pair of slippers. Jesus rose from the grave. He was destroying the power of death once and for all, so that anyone who believes, anyone who believes in him, might share in his life and enjoy immortality with him. I, I have to ask, have you received the grace of Jesus? Have you received the life that is available in him? It's wonderful to hear of Lawrence having done that earlier. And there may be some here today who need to do it for the very first time. But the, the primary application of these verses here in 2 Timothy isn't to the one who is yet to believe. It is, in fact, to people like Timothy, people who know all about God's grace and know all about the resurrection and the defeat of death, but somehow are still tempted to be ashamed of the gospel message or of faithful gospel messengers. And Paul's saying, on the one hand, remember everything that God has done for you. Remember his love, remember his salvation, remember his grace, remember the way that if you've trusted in him, he has washed away all of your sin. He has won life and immortality for you. Remember the power of the gospel that he's entrusted to you. Something very liberating about what he's saying, because you, you start thinking, well, what does it matter if I have to suffer a little bit now if there is an eternity of boundless joy and life awaiting me. And there's something very captivating about what he's saying as well. The, the grace of God constrains us and trains us to live for him and serve him. We've received so much from him, all of it free. How could we be ashamed? And then on another level, how could we keep it to ourselves? How could we depart from this message and start listening to or, or peddling a different one. Our, our world is desperately in need of God's grace and life. There are people who are massively dear to each of us who have no idea that Christ abolished death, have no interest at the moment in the fact that he stands ready and willing to forgive them and to prosper them for all eternity. What would I be saying if I weren't willing to endure a little pain to give them the chance of knowing Christ's love? So then the command, guard the gospel, the motivation is the glory of the gospel itself. It is wonderful, isn't it? Nothing else in the world can save. Nothing else in the world can give life. And so we come to the resources because there's no way we can do any of this on our own. This is the, is the how. Guard the gospel in the power of the Spirit. We had a point on this last week, so I won't spend too long on it. But notice how Paul reminds Timothy and the rest of the church of the resources of the Holy Spirit. We had it in verse 7. God has given us a spirit not of fear, moral cowardice, but of power, of love, of self-control. Now again in verse 8, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And you'll see it in verse 14 even more clearly. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. 
guard the good deposit entrusted to you, the good deposit of the gospel. Um, That little word, us, in verse 14 is such a relief, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Because it's saying that the Spirit who dwells within you and me, if if we're Christians, is exactly the same Spirit who lived in Paul the Apostle. Is that not a wonderful thing? You think of all that the, the apostles did in the service of the Lord, and the same Spirit who empowered them is within you and me. I wonder if we tend to think that the extent to which God can use us in his service is determined by our natural abilities and temperament. So that if you or I are naturally brilliant at communication or naturally courageous or naturally extrovert, then God can do great things through us. But if we're not, he can't. I hope we can scotch that idea once and for all this morning. I was thinking back to the apostles. Most of you are actually far better educated than most of them ever were. Uh, God didn't use them because they went to a top university and got a PhD. He used them because they prayed. And they asked God to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And he fills us with the same Spirit today. Um, Some of you were here last week when I read an Oswald Chambers quotation. I've been reflecting on it again this week. Just to kind of paraphrase what he was saying. You might be a somebody with all sorts of natural ability, but you'll only ever be of any use to God if you abandon reliance upon yourself and rest in the Spirit. Or you might be a nobody and think you have no ability, but that is the perfect qualification for service. If rather than disqualifying myself, I rely on the power of the Spirit. Just think what might be possible in St. Andrews if each one of us were to do that. One final thought as we close. It is daunting, this idea, isn't it, of being a church unashamed and committed to sharing this gospel of life. Glance down for another encouragement to verse 11, please. Paul says, I've been appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and teacher of the gospel, which, verse 12, is why I suffer as I do, but... I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. It's a wonderful statement of God's invincibility. I'm not ashamed, says Paul, because I know God. I don't just know about him. I know God. That's the privilege of the Christian. In the experience of my life, I know how real he is. And I know for sure that he is at work in the world and will be absolutely uh, committed to ensuring that the light of his gospel will never go out on this earth until the day when Jesus comes again and every eye beholds his glory and every knee bows before him and every tongue confesses that he's Lord. And on that day, He will welcome all of his children into his heavenly kingdom with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Nothing can stop God's eternal gospel and nothing can stop God's fatherly care of his people 
And so Paul says to Timothy, to the whole church in Ephesus, to us, I've finished my race. I've fought the fight. Now you go in the power of the Spirit and guard the gospel of Jesus, which alone can save and give life. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled to remember your grace. We know that we don't deserve, it's not by our works, that you should love us. And yet the Lord Jesus was willing to come and manifest your grace, to die on the cross for us, and to include us in his triumph over death and evil, so that we might have life and in him be immortal, to be in relationship with you for all eternity. We want to thank you and praise you for him. And we want to pray that you would so excite our hearts with the glory of that gospel message that we would be entirely unashamed of it and of those who proclaim it. That in our generation, as it becomes less and less popular, that we would stand for it, that we would be unashamed of what it says, that we would guard it and pass it on faithfully. And we pray that you would empower us by your spirit. We're so grateful that you live in us and you don't require us to do any of this in our own strength. And we're grateful to be reminded that no one can stop your plans or purposes. And so we can have confidence in you. And so we pray, almighty God, have mercy on us by the power of your spirit. Help us to guard your glorious gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.